Welcome, everyone, back to a new season of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church. And I've got with me in the studio... Ashley Wakefield. Hey, Ashley. This time, we're going through the book of Deuteronomy. I'm so excited to jump into this. Um, This has been a long time coming. Uh, We took a little bit of a break on the beginning of this um, to focus just really on Christmas and the holidays. And we're back at it again looking at the book of Deuteronomy. Um, If this is your first time uh, ever opening up the book of Deuteronomy, book, I said that weird, but uh, if this is your first time ever opening up the book of Deuteronomy, um, I would say that uh, before we ever get started, this is going to be a long one. Um, There's a lot of longer chapters in this book, and uh, there's going to be some dense stuff in here, so uh, we're definitely going to take it step by step. Um, We'll break it down for you, hopefully. And I'm excited for what this journey has. It's going to be hopefully 34 weeks. There's 34 chapters in the book of Deuteronomy um, as we work through it. So um, why don't you strap in and come along for the ride? Do you have anything, Ashley, to add? No, that's it. I'm excited to get into it. All right, let's do this. All right, so for the inaugural season two opening, uh, we are jumping straight into the book of Deuteronomy. There's a few things I wanted to uh, really lay out before we jump into this chapter. Um, One of the things, if you've never cracked open the book of Deuteronomy before, is that uh, this is structured in an old covenant treaty. Um, There's been a lot of research done in archaeological research around the time frame that uh, Deuteronomy was probably written um, that indicate that uh, a lot of different um, nations would enter into treaties with one another um, during this time period. And the treaties were often called, a very fancy name, called the Suzerain Vassal Treaties. Um, These treaties were basically a treaty between a stronger nation and a weaker nation. And what they would do is the stronger nation would usually um, go into an agreement uh, promising to protect them from other nations that might invade the weaker nation. Um, They might promise to uh, make sure that they had enough of um, whatever uh, food and crops was available that the stronger nation had. Um, They might promise to uh, make sure that um, anytime um, some type of person from uh, the weaker nation traveled in the land of the stronger nation. They were going to be always protected and any laws that were in the weaker nation would be uphold upheld in the stronger nation. Um, it kind of varied a lot based off of just how they decided they were going to treat <laughs> the weaker nation. And usually these treaties were sometimes even set up after a conquest. Sometimes a stronger nation would conquer a weaker nation and then would decide to be a little nicer than just, you know, you're going to do what I say now. And sometimes they would set up a treaty of sorts that kind of established sort of the law of the land, if you were, um, with this kind of new uh, treaty that they had. So what's cool about this is, and the reason I bring all this up, is that Deuteronomy is actually structured like one of these treaties. The one difference between uh, how these treaties was operated is very rarely did they ever have a treaty between their God and the people. It was usually a treaty between two nations. And yet this treaty is very much a treaty between the Israelites 
and God. Um, and we have the same layout. I'll, I'll kind of walk through that really quickly so you have an idea as we go through this. And I'll probably actually put, um, as we walk, work through this podcast, I'll probably put some like headers um, on the podcast titles to kind of give you an, a sense of where we're heading. Um, but generally, it's broken down into um, a couple different sections. The first section is usually like a historical prologue to the treaty, which is exactly how Deuteronomy opens. We kind of open with this um, long form prologue of here's how we got to the point we get, we are today. Here's how we got to the point at which we're signing a treaty. Um, and that's typically called the historical prologue. And then we'll have a section right after that, which focuses on general stipulations. Um, and this is just like general rules that have uh Basically, both nations are going to agree to uphold and are going to agree to um, uh, punish if things don't get upheld. Um, secondly, um, after that, they'll move to a section of more detailed stipulations. This is kind of what I would call, like in uh, our modern context at least, this is kind of like um, the, uh, oh, what's the term? I forgot it. Just I had it in my head a second ago. Sort of like the... Uh, explanation of certain laws if there was like a law that was just kind of general but there was a situation that like came up after the general law was given this would be sort of oh an amendment uh, that, that that's the word I was looking for this would be sort of the amendments to the law um, uh, a lot of times in our US government for us instance uh, when we put a law in place um, a lot of times uh, then we'll have a situation where the law we put in place doesn't necessarily specify what to do in the situation. And so it has to go through all the courts again and kind of get a new detailed law that kind of updates the old law and we amend the law as such. So this section, um, usually from chap uh, chapters 12 through 26 is kind of considered, uh, of Deuteronomy, is considered the detailed stipulations, more specific instructions. And then we have sort of in chapter 27, a document clause. This sec, uh, this is just kind of laying out, okay, here of all the laws been um, uh, laid out. We've got both the general laws that are laid out, and we've then got some more detailed laws. And then in chapter seven, 27, it just kind of uh, stops and says, all right, so we've got them all here. Uh, and then it goes immediately into chapter 28, which works through the curses and blessings that'll happen if you follow after the laws. And if you don't follow the laws, then you'll have curses that happen. And that's how the um, suzerain vassal treaties were uh, kind of organized, is you had a historical prologue, how do we get here? Um, you have some general stipulations, the general laws, and then specific laws. Then you have a whole document clause that kind of establishes everything, sort of like the signature, if you will. And then we have what will happen if you don't follow those laws and what will happen if you do follow those laws. So hopefully that was uh, condensed enough. Uh, did you have anything or thoughts on that, Ashley? Yeah, I remember studying that when I first went here to MSCC in my um, old in my Pentateuch class. And um, I remember thinking that it was very interesting how God always takes elements of our daily life and implements them into what he wants us to do so that it's more relatable that it's easy for us to understand and I also remember hearing uh, reading something about like the Hittites how the Hittites would often do something like this like they would put together um, some type of agreement like this between them and another nation and also reading about how um, the this preamble that God is putting together everything in it is different from what other nations would typically do uh, one of the things one because it's between God and the people and not between like a high-ranking king over a lower-ranking king but also different from the fact that like God would do certain things like making sure that the poor would benefit it in the nation and how other 
um, other documents or preambles like that would not have that information in it. So God was very concerned about taking care of those who did not have very much land, who didn't have a lot of money or a lot of food. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I do think that uh, also of interest here is um, this ending, the curses and the blessings uh, will be very important for um, actually Isaiah. Isaiah spends a lot of time um, basically talking about how all of the curses that are happening to Israel and that he's predicting will happen is because they didn't follow through with the treaty in Deuteronomy. And that's one of the reasons too, um, if you were wondering, why did we pick Deuteronomy next? Like what, what what's the reasoning there for going into Deuteronomy? Um, one of the things I've noticed is that um, one, it's one of the most de-emphasized books because it usually gets... Uh, talked about as a book that's just a reiteration of Leviticus usually. I think that's what most people think it is, is just even the name Deuteronomy means in Greek uh, second law. And so a lot of people just assume oh, it's the second law, meaning like it's just the second retelling of the law. So I don't really really need to read that because I got all of it in Leviticus. Um, and uh, what I hope to do kind of through this whole working through of the book is just to show that that's not really the case. There's a lot of new laws actually that are given in Deuteronomy. There's a lot of explanation that uh, gets ha- that happens in Deuteronomy that we don't get in Leviticus. And also on top of that, um, this is going to be probably shocking for some of you, is uh, this is the first time in the entire uh, Pentateuch that uh, the concept of loving God as a command comes up. Before, um, the, uh, before Deuteronomy, if we just had the first four books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, there's not a single command in them to love God. There's just a command to follow after his commands. Um, this is the first time we get a command to love God. So um, with all of that as kind of a teaser, let's go ahead. And, well, Ashley, before I jump in, did you have any thoughts on that before we jump in? No, that's it. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan, that is, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, beneath Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hezerot, and Dizahav. It takes eleven days to go from Horev to Gadesh Barnea, by the Mount Seir road. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon, and at Edrei had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtarot. East of the Jordan in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound his law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain break camp and in advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. At that time I said to you, You are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers, so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. May the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? 
Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. You answered me, What you propose to do is good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected men, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and as tribal officials. And I charged you judges at that time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly, whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Bring me any case too hard for you, and I will hear it. And at that time, I told you everything you were to do. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites, through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen, and and so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, You have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, Let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it, taking with them some of the fruit of the land. They brought it down to us and reported, It is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say, The people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large, with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, Do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes, and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey, in fire by night and in a cloud by day, to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors. Except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You shall not enter it either. But your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, your children, who do not know yet, uh, good from bad, will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the road route to the Red Sea. Then you replied, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight, as the Lord our God commanded us. So every one of you put on his weapons, thinking it easy to go up into the hill country. But the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go up and fight, because I will not be with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. So I told you, but you would not listen. 
You rebelled against the Lord's command, and in your arrogance you marched up into the hill country. The Amorites who lived in the hills came out against you. They chased you like a swarm of bees and beat you down from Seir all the way to Hormah. You came back and wept before the Lord, but he paid no attention to your weeping and turned a deaf ear to you. And so you stayed in Kadesh many days, all the time you spent there. All right. So uh, we got a lot of history recap to talk about today. I'm really excited about this. Some of you may not be. That's okay. Uh, (laughs) Ashley and I here are history buffs. So this is always a fun day where we get to talk about history. Hopefully, though, uh, one of the another reasons that we opened up with Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy kind of recaps the story in and of itself. If you couldn't tell by this first chapter, we kind of get a lot of the uh, backstory to uh, what's going on as we start out with Deuteronomy. Um, A lot of the interesting things here also are kind of related to the fact that um, that wicked generation that we heard everything about um, in uh, this chapter uh, dies off completely, uh, and really only Joshua and Caleb um, live long enough to get to enter the land. And this whole generation that's receiving these words from Moses here in Deuteronomy is a completely new generation. Um, And so, yeah, they've never had to they never really get to see the uh, works of uh, God as far as um, uh, the parting of the Reed Sea or um, all of the plagues that were done in Egypt. All this generation is a completely new generation to um, the works of God. Really, all they have to go on is this chapter um, in specific. Um, this entire chapter uh, specifically of Og um, being uh, one of the kings that they, they defeat, as well as... Um, uh, what's the other king's name? Uh, Sion? Uh, yeah, Sion. Thank you. Sion. Oh, um, Sion. <laughs> yeah, well, Hebrew versus English pronunciations uh, are always weird, but I try and do justice to the Hebrew pronunciations. Uh, but yeah, so Sion as well, um, both those two kings are really the only um, evidence that this new generation has um, that God is a God of power. And so a lot of Deuteronomy is kind of set up as this um, kind of explanation to this new generation of like, look, you can trust in God and please, 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 please do not commit the sin of your fathers. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's something really sad about that, the fact that the generation that did see all of those powerful works, all the miracles did not go in and the ones who are going in are kind of, I don't know if I should say going in blind because they never actually saw any of it. And it's actually like a little sad because it feels a little incomplete because it would have been better the idea of the people who saw it originally happen go in there and see it finally completed instead of it being the people who um, took over after their their forefathers, their parents basically failed at what they were supposed to do. But I think that's something that's really important about this entire book of Deuteronomy, like the entire emphasis on remembering the things that God did in the past, which I think is a really helpful reminder about what we need to do now. And it kind of makes me think about like when you're saying like, don't make the same mistakes your fathers did, kind of like the idea that the reason that Moses is telling them this, let it be a lesson to you to not do the same thing. And I think that's, I'm not a parent, but like when I think about becoming a parent at some point in my life, then I think about using the mistakes in my life to prevent my kids from making the same ones, like being very candid about the things that I did wrong and not holding back out of shame, understanding that that could be wisdom from somebody else. So, yeah, Yeah, I think like a lot of uh, the depth of this passage for me is just kind of a meaningful passage is just how um, sometimes children are handed the roles of following after God without any kind of direction from their parents, you know, and there's a sense in which like, 
that's definitely the case here. And so we get a whole book of the Bible that's sort of Moses's attempt to really flesh out what they didn't get um, from their parents. Uh, and who knows, you know, like as they were wandering around in the wilderness, maybe their parents did kind of wisen up and learn. But at least from if you go and read the book of Numbers, um, it doesn't look like they ever learned their lesson even after this rebellion. There's several rebellion stories after this one. Um, and so it just is it's really sad story all throughout Numbers of just how um, that generation that saw so many signs and wonders uh performed uh, just really kind of went off the rails. Uh, it was one point I think, you know, a lot of times God gets um, criticized for being super harsh to that generation um, and making them kind of just wander 40 years in the desert and make them all die off. Like uh, it seems pretty severe, but uh, it, when you have the kind of context of how many rebellions um, that generation had, it kind of makes sense. Um, and it's one of those things that I think with the opening uh Moses opens with this idea of, look, all you've got as kind of evidence that God's with you is that we won two victories here, and that's going to have to be enough, you know, like yeah. we've got these two victories, you've, and you probably shouldn't have won those victories because um, there is an interesting thing here. Um, it'll mention it later, I think, in Chronicles that Og, king of Bashan, um, was probably one of the Nephilim, uh, or at least a giant, Um there is a verse that mentions that he had His like bed. a big a bed. Yeah, yeah, a big bed. <laughs> it was that like was, a nine foot bed or something. Yeah, it was like a nine foot yeah. bed. And uh, yeah, it was very much, uh, a, he wasn't just like a no name. He was a very powerful king. Um, and so there's this kind of sense of like, uh, this was a big deal. And that's why I think Moses opens up with this before we get into the treaty with God is that, look, if you follow after God, you'll defeat people you shouldn't be able to defeat. Um, and I think that's also why when he goes into the backstory, he makes a particular, uh, like mention of the fact that, uh, when the people are not, uh, pleasing God, they're not going to win battles. Um, cause if you'll notice this evil generation, their fathers, um, when they messed up at the very end of the chapter, uh, it talks about how they're like, Oh no, 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 we, we, we'll, we'll be all right now. We'll, we'll do it. <laughs> and, uh, they try and go up anyways yeah uh, after they mess up and uh god's like don't do it yeah and but, i think there's just such a big emphasis on how god doesn't change his mind like even when we change our minds god's like nope i told you i'm not gonna be with you i don't care if you decide to do it i've already said you're, i'm not gonna be with you it's it that's a done deal like <laughs> yeah well and it's interesting too because like there is a theme here in which god doesn't ever like to do things for his children if his children already know the outcome. Uh, he tip, tends to like his children to trust in him and not reveal things um, for that reason, um, so that they trust in him. And so I think some of that is just the fact that like uh, they got a pronouncement from him saying it wasn't going to work out now, and so then they're like, "Oh no, no, we'll we'll do it," you know, or whatever, hoping for the original thing. Uh, when God's like. Uh, no, the the trust in me is off the table now. Like, yeah. you know, all of that's said and done. So, And I think that's kind of the point why God puts them or even us in situations where we feel like, well, I can't handle this. And it's like, well, that's kind of the point. Like, you're not supposed to be doing it alone. Like, you're only operating in the power that God is allowing you to operate in. And then he's taking over the things that you can't do to prove even further that he's God and that he's going to protect you. And I think that 
that's a mistake that I feel like all of us, including myself, make. Like you think that, okay, I have to figure out like how am I going to solve this problem and try to figure out a plan no matter what it's going to be. And then at the end of the day, it's sort of like there are certain things that I don't have the power to control. And then when I relinquish that control to God, the things that I cannot do, he takes over and he shows himself as powerful as he's ever been. And it's sort of like the same thing here is like this concept of the fact that like the whole point that I wanted you to understand when I put you in that situation to fight giants that you could not defeat was the fact that you weren't really the ones defeating them. It was me who was doing it. So all you had to do was let me do it and let me use you as a vessel to do it. So Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of sad really that uh, I, and again, right, we got to remember the context. This isn't just a people that never saw anything. Mm. They actually had signs of God performing miraculous wonders and certain you know, like it'd be one thing if he asked that of a com- of a generation that he didn't do the Reed Sea with, right. you know. But it's another thing when you he asks that of a generation that he does the Reed Sea with, you know. It's that like there's a sense in which like uh, they should have known, you know, like yeah. they, they should have had that understanding that like, look, we literally saw water part two ways, you know, like yeah. uh, uh, that. I think that's kind of what. Uh, Jesus kind of picks on in the New mm-hmm. Testament is um, he calls that generation a wicked generation because mm-hmm. they want signs. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he makes clear in John is that like you shouldn't need a sign that I am who I am because right. like if you had worshipped God and knew who God was, you'd know that I am him. You know, like yeah. you'd already understand that like I'm doing the work of my father just mm-hmm. as my father does you know right Um, and there's something really disheartening about people who have seen the works that god did in egypt and in the wilderness and they still had a hard time having faith and versus people who have not seen those things and they're expected to have a level of faith that their fathers did not have when they saw all those things and it's kind of like well how can that even be logically possible if if they saw it and still didn't believe and then we have not seen it and we're expected to have a greater faith than they did and it but yeah going back to the idea of jesus i was thinking about how like when jesus was in the wilderness being tempted by satan that he quotes everything that he says back to Satan is quoted from Deuteronomy. And it's sort of like this idea throughout the um, concept of Deuteronomy is remembering what God has done in the past to give you faith in the future. And Jesus is quoting from the second law to remember what you're supposed to do. And then he's using that as a way to fight against the spiritual battle that he's going through in the desert. So I just thought that was a good connection. No, that's a great point. Um, One of the interesting things about Deuteronomy is uh, as we get through it, this is really a call to the, people the second generation that uh, does not have the signs and wonders that their fathers did um, to constantly remember the stories that their fathers told them and it's just kind of hearkening back to you'll 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 see that there's a theme of memory and not just like oh remember this and then move on there's like this idea of like remembering and like meditating on it and thinking about it um thinking about the stories that your parents told you and even if you didn't get to see the actions you can still remember them um there's there's some theories that deuteronomy was written later you know like past obviously uh, chapter 34 uh, was definitely not written by moses um, because it talks about moses dying (laughs) um but some of the theories place deuteronomy as written uh quite late and while i'm not sure i Uh, ascribe myself to those theories. Um, One of the things that I think about is I definitely think that it was edited into the form we have it by a later date. And when they were editing it, I wonder if they were, um, the prevailing theory is that they were probably editing them while they were in exile in Babylon. And if they were doing it during that time period, again, big question mark there, but if they were, uh, a lot of uh, memory that's in 
uh, Deuteronomy would be something that uh, they would really resonate with, um, being in their predicament where they're exiled from the land of Jerusalem now. A lot of the ending curses of Deuteronomy will have come true by that point. Um, And so there's a lot of things that I think, uh, even as they were looking back on this um, book, uh, probably centuries later, um, caused them to really focus on specific things like memory in particular. So that's definitely a theme to kind of keep in mind as we work through this is just how important memory will be and how that's important. Even as Christians today, um, a lot of the Psalms will pick up on that theme. I just finished reading through all the Psalms recently. And one of the things I'm struck by is one of the core sources of faith for the psalm writers is not just like esoteric strength faith, like I was always brought up to think, but just remember what his God has done in the past, you know, like remember some of the things he did like two years ago in your life. Um, And if you remember those things, um, you should have faith that he'll do them again, you know? And so I think that that there's definitely the beginnings of that is here in Deuteronomy. Um, it's this kind of sense of like calling these, this generation that didn't actually get to see with their eyes what God did, but they can listen to the stories. Um, kind of like we as Christians do today. We read the Bible and listen to the stories of the Bible. And we remember through these tellings of what the past was like. And we, gain faith through that. I think that's kind of the source of our faith in a sense. So, all right. Um, There's one little bit that I'll talk about. We kind of mostly talked about most of what I wanted to, but there is one little addition here that I felt like was interesting to mention um, is really verses nine through 18. He kind of breaks from the story and well, it's still part of the history, but it's interesting. He focuses on how um, in the time of the first generation, uh, Moses just gets really overwhelmed from leading the people. And so he has to set up a bunch of uh, judges um, to basically judge over the smaller groups of people because there's just too many people for Moses to judge them all himself. And these judges kind of become um, sort of the source of righteousness. Um, I've talked a little bit before about how righteousness does not just mean morality, but righteousness uh, is kind of more akin to the word justice in English. Uh, It means that idea of having the right thing come out. Um, And so judges were supposed to be um, this people that were set up by Moses to listen to arguments between two people and to settle disputes among them. And so here's what's really interesting about this is uh, you kind of have this system set up where they're given a law by God. And then anytime there was like a question mark about a law, anytime there was like a thing that like, you know, on the ground level practically just wasn't explained by the law, um, these judges would step in and rule in those cases. Um, we'll see an example of that um, in Kings, actually, where Solomon kind of takes that role and hears a uh, dispute bet- between two women um, and their uh, children. Uh, and it's really famous story. Solomon's kind of upheld as being super wise for how he answers um, that uh, case. Um, but the idea is first found here. Um, it's this first setup is uh, where um, all these judges were set up to kind of rule in cases where the Bible was kind of unclear even maybe, or their scriptures were unclear, and to basically give rulings. Um, this becomes a theme throughout the entire Bible, um, mainly because these judges never did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I think oh, that's go. a really good concept to understand is that like you see Moses leading the people by himself and he's overburdened. So there's other leaders that need to come in to help 
take off that burden. And I think that that's a really good concept of how like a church should be run anyway. Like it shouldn't be just the pastor doing all the work and the pastor is the only leader. But, you know, even in the New Testament where they talk about those different gifts, gifts like apostle, pastor, prophet, evangelist, teacher, like all those gifts are put there for a reason. Those people are put there for a reason to take the burden off of one person because some people have a greater gift than others. And we're taking those people who have that greatest gift and putting them in charge of something. So that way one person isn't burdened with everything. And so I think that's a really good concept of of that of learning how to divide up power instead of letting power balance with one person it it really is and what's interesting is that um the writer of judges will pick up on this and basically say that all these judges started doing what was right in their own eyes because the implication is is they kind of forgot leviticus and numbers and deuteronomy and they just kind of did stuff on their own and uh yeah it kind of got went into huge chaos and by the time of ezekiel um it had gotten so corrupt and people were buying out judges and the system never actually fully worked it looks like just based off of how it uh, appears in scripture and through the history telling of it it just just never seems like these judges ever um did what they were supposed to do Uh, maybe in the time of moses it seems they were a lot better but um yeah, the uh, sad truth of it is that by the time even we get to the book of Judges, um, most of them had kind of gone awry. And then definitely by the time of uh, Ezekiel, they had just become super corrupt. But- yeah, and I, I even think that what you just said a moment ago was a good way to even handle something like that. Like the idea of like that there's something in the Bible that isn't completely clear that you're still using the Bible as a foundation to figure out the answer to something and making a judgment based off of that. Because the Bible doesn't address every single issue in the world. Like the Bible doesn't say don't do drugs, for example. Like, so <laughs> yeah. like, but there's verses that you can pull from the Bible, like about, like, let's just say, for example, like the idea of how Paul talks about, like, I'm free to do all things, but like, I'm, I'm free to do all things, but not all things benefit me. So is doing drugs going to benefit you? No. <laughs> so something like that, or even comparing it to the concept of being addicted to alcohol, like drunkenness is really like looked looked down upon. I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but drunkenness is not approved of anyway. Yeah. And comparing that to the idea of something else, another substance that you can be addicted to. You know, it's sort of like something like that. It's like you taking the Bible and using it as a foundation, even if something you're going through doesn't make it very clear in the Bible because, you know. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think the the most interesting um, thing is that a lot of times uh, the prominent point that gets brought up a lot is um, that it's the judges that are more at fault than just the regular everyday people. Um, That's a point that Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah hone in on is that, you know, if the judges had been judging correctly, uh, then the people would have understood God's law better. They would have understood understood scripture better, you know. And so it's this kind of concept of like, it's not just that every person is responsible for you know, reading the scriptures and they're all individually responsible and there's no communal uh, culpability is the fancy word, but like there's no like responsibility for the leaders to have this extra sort of responsibility, I guess. Um, And I I disagree with that. I think that the leaders do hold a little bit more power to make decisions. And I think that they do um, have that power because um, they're able to judge between disputes that not everyone will be able to do. Um, and so I think I think there's a part of uh, this whole concept that's really wise to set up the way it was. Um, this was originally uh, set up actually not even by an Israelite, but by Jethro, uh, a Midianite, uh, who was uh, um, Moses's um, father-in-law. Um, but I think it was a very wise thing that they set up um, to kind of 
uh, go about. And I just hate that, uh, like most things with the history of the Israelites, it never really got off the ground. Um, it, that is a good point to bring up, though, Ashley, is that a lot of you'll see a lot of kind of like parallels between how the Israelites structured things and how the church structures things. One of the things you'll see is um, actually the word assembly um, in the Greek um, is the same word um, that gets used for the assembly at Mount Sinai in the Greek. Um, I know um, most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but um, there is a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and uh, in that Greek version, um, the word ekklesia or assembly, um, church is how we usually say it, gets used quite a bit for uh, the assembly of the people at Mount Sinai. So if you were to ask someone a Bible, tri- Bible trivia question, when does the church first show up in the Bible? Um, you might have to go with Deuteronomy um, or actually Exodus because that's where it's first brought up. So um, it's a cool little moment where we get to see even a little bit of the beginnings of a gathering or assembly that comes together to listen to God and hear someone teach about God. And I will say, as far as Deuteronomy goes, this is probably the first sermon ever given. Um, This is the first time a group of people ever gathered around to hear one person, Moses, give a speech. So um, we got a lot of firsts here in this first episode of season two. So that's kind of cool. All right. Well, uh, Ashley, if you didn't have anything uh, further to add, let's go ahead and call it here. All right. That's it. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And we'll be back in your feed again next week, going through chapter two of the book of Deuteronomy. Thanks so much, guys. Bye-bye. 